Uh, I said last week that Hebrews 2 is a psalm that uh, requires a bit more heavy lifting. It's a little bit harder to understand and apply uh, Psalm 2 to our lives. Psalm 95 is not that. Sigh of relief. Psalm 95 is a very simple and yet very wonderful psalm. It's a call to worship, and, and we, Hans read it, let us, uh, let us in it earlier as a call to worship. Uh, it's a call to worship, an invitation to make a joyful noise to the Lord, to bow down before our Maker and Savior. It's a reminder that at the heart of the relationship that God wants for us and calls us to is joyful, humble worship and thanksgiving a dependence on him, a submission to him that doesn't steal our life, but gives us life. So we're going to jump right in. Psalm 95, first couple verses. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So again, this is a call to worship. Like we do every Sunday at the beginning of the service, call ourselves, call one another to worship. It's an invitation to do what we were made to do, what is fitting and right and good to do, and that is worship God. To worship means to ascribe worth and worthiness to God. God is exceedingly worthy of our lives, of our words, of our loves, of our everything. And notice specifically the kind of language used, the kind of worship that is called for here. Sing. Make a joyful noise. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise. Songs of praise. I don't know if you, if you try to, what images come to your mind when you think about this. I think of little kids it's, it seems that kids often have an easier time making joyful noises than, than us adults much of the time. They just seem to exude this. But whatever image comes to your mind, uh, I, do, I don't think we can say it enough. The kind of worship and obedience and trust and love that God desires from us and calls us to and works in us is a singing, joyous, thanksgiving kind of worship and love and joy and trust. God is not pleased by cold, begrudging, okay, I guess so, merely going through the motions of outward religion and devotion and obedience. That's not what he wants from us. That doesn't please him. Yes, you should do what is right whether you feel like it or not. I wasn't feeling like it doesn't hold up in court. Don't try that. However, we must press on to the love and affection and joy that God wants for us. God has made it abundantly clear in Scripture that he is after our joy and delight. That the kind of relationship he wants for us is one full of joy and delight. That what he has done for us, that who he is to us, And what he calls us to, what he's planned for us and his promises, all of this is intended to bring about and inspire singing. 
and joy and thanksgiving. And not just on Sundays, but all the time, throughout the week. As I think over my experience in various churches and just my observations of, of Christians and conversation with Christians, it seems that this is something that we, and I include myself in this too, something that we find particularly difficult. I'm not totally sure of all the reasons for that. Perhaps we think that being in submission to God and in submission to his overarching authority is something that's incompatible with joy. So we tend to perhaps equate joy with freedom. Freedom from all authority and responsibility. Perhaps similarly, we merely want to get things from God. We want to use God, but not give ourselves to God. And so we come to God, we come to his word, we come to church, and, and we ask, tell me what I have to do to get you to love me and bless me so I can do it, feel good about myself, and move on. We don't look to God to be a source of joy. We just look to him as a means to getting what we want. Perhaps it's just easier to go through the motions and not really engage our heart where joy is often felt. It's easier to just check off the list. Church, Bible reading, prayer, doing some good deeds, supporting some good causes, and never consider our heart and emotions. Perhaps we think that all that's, that matters is just being saved for eternity. And things like joy and worship are optional and thus not very important. Well, I'm, I trusted in Christ a while ago. I'm, I'm good to go. And surely some of us just at times feel that life is too difficult, too, too busy, too messy, too stressful for joy in the Lord. Joy in the Lord. But at the same time, we, we know people, I'm sure, who have been, had very hard lives who have also exuded much joy. So we know that that's not necessarily a barrier to joy. But whatever the reason, we tend to ignore or downplay the biblical picture of a Christian life that is characterized by what we see here in the first couple verses, joyful singing. We tend to think that a kind of glumness and sourness and half-hearted obedience, begrudging devotion is the best we can hope for and something God is pleased with. But again, God is calling us, inviting us, even commanding us to see and know him in such a way that we make a joyful noise, that such things flow out of us naturally. As John Piper is well known for saying with a phrase he adapted from Jonathan Edwards, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied or joy-filled in him. As long as our joy and satisfaction and delight is connected to and rooted in God and who he is to us, it's increasing in measure glorifies God. The glory increases to God as we are more joyful and satisfied in him. Now, there's also another temptation we may feel in hearing this invitation. And that is that we feel that we ourselves must produce and manufacture this 
excitement and happiness and exuberance and pretend that it's the joy of the Lord. And as churches, it's really easy to fall into this trap. We think we need to find new and creative ways to get people excited and get them coming back and getting involved and assume that the Spirit is working. We think we perhaps need to use loud music and bright lights and lots of movement and a very charismatic leader to get everyone pumped up and then increase it by one on the volume each week because you get used to it. But we don't produce or create or manipulate the joy of the Lord. You can go to Vegas or New York and get bright lights and loud music and the most impressive creativity in the world and you can get people that are amped up and excited and the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with it. This is not something we can or have to produce or pretend. Though it is something we are called to seek after and pray for. So how do we do that? If this kind of joy, joy in the Lord, singing, thanksgiving, if this kind of attitude, disposition, is an integral part of the Christian life, but we can't produce it with human techniques by turning the volume up to 11. What can we do? Verses 3 to 5 help us here. 4. So there's a transition word. Do this, and here's the reason. Here's the basis. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. His, in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So again, the first word there, for, gives a reason for what was just said, a reason for the call to worship. Why are we called to, to sing joyfully, to make a joyful noise before the Lord? For the Lord, Yahweh, God of the Bible, is a great God and a great king or ruler above all gods. And why is he great? Well, the first thing that's listed here is because he is the creator. He holds the whole world in his hands. Everything from the depths of the sea, it says, to the heights of the mountain, everything from the sea to the dry land, or depths of the earth to the heights of the mountains, sea to the dry land. And the point in listing these contrasts is to say that every, all of this and everything in between, all that is, is his. And so the first and most basic reason that we are called to give not only allegiance to God, but worship to God, is because he is the creator and sustainer. And thus, owner, king, ruler of all that is. We owe our very existence to him. We are his. Which also means, and the Bible makes this clear, that everything exists for him. Colossians 1.16, everything is created through him and for him. Because all things exist through him and by him, they also exist for his sake. The world doesn't ultimately exist for you. The world doesn't ultimately exist for, say, the most powerful, mighty ruler that existed, or for the most humble, loving person there could be. Now, there is a sense in which God is preparing a world for his people, yes, but ultimately, this world and the world to come, and all that is, exists for him, 
for his glory, for the display of his glory, and for the rejoicing in him and his glory. And yet, we may hear all of this and still wonder if joy is the right and fitting response. Does simply the fact that God created us lead to our joy? Does that mean, does that confirm to us that he is good? Does it mean we can trust him? Does it mean we should love him? Well, thankfully, God did not just create the world and then let it go. He did not cease revealing who he was. In other words, his attributes do not end with powerful and sovereign. We're not called to worship him only because he's powerful and sovereign. And so verses 6 to 7 fill out this picture a little bit more, which of course the rest of the Bible does as well, of why God is worthy of joyful worship. Verse 6, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. So this begins with another call to worship. Come, let us worship and bow down. But this time the emphasis is on humility and submission that are right and appropriate for all humans before God. It's a posture of bowing down and kneeling before him who made us. And so to, to make this clear, to connect this all together, the joyful singing and thanksgiving of verses 1 through 2 is not at odds with the deep reverence and humility of verses 6 and 7. Does your posture before God, your attitude before God, display, exhibit both joy and humility? As I like to say, a, a humble confidence. Not on the one hand a boasting, flippant, self-seeking joy, nor on the other hand, a somber, dejected, insecure humility, but a humility filled with joy and confidence and satisfaction. And the reason, part of the reason that this is warranted is found in what comes there in verse 7 with another four. So here we have another reason for worship. Another reason for why worship is fitting. For he is our God. Now, you should notice the personal pronouns in verse 7. Our, we, his. The implication is that he has personally engaged us as a God. He is not only the God or a God, he is our God. He's not only creator of everything, he is near and present and active in the lives of his people of all who call on him. We are the people of his pasture. We are the sheep of his hand. Notice that it said earlier, he holds in his hand everything and he holds us in his hand. There is both a transcendence and greatness to him and a nearness and intimacy. His, his greatness and transcendence and his being the creator, sovereign creator of all things doesn't mean that he's distant and disengaged and uncaring and unknown and unknowable. 
He has come near to us to be known by us, to be loved and worshipped and rejoiced in by us. But he gives us the word Emmanuel, God with us, to know him. Still, we might ask at this point, but what kind of God is he? Is he good? Sure, he's our God. He wants to be known, but is he a good God? Still, can we rejoice like this? Is that the natural outflow of knowing God? And what we're told here and throughout Scripture, and the, one of the images that God, God himself gives us here to understand him is that of a shepherd. He would have us see him, uh, our relationship with him, to be akin to a sheep being cared for by a shepherd. He cares for us. He protects us. He provides for us. He feeds us. He leads us. He guides us. All of the things that are come to mind when you think of a, a good shepherd caring for, tending to sheep. Psalm 23, of course, speaks of this. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a lot to reflect on there, but this idea comes up, up elsewhere in Scripture. God is repeatedly saying, see me as a shepherd. Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so Jesus, as a good shepherd, as God in the flesh, goes out and searches for lost sheep. All of us. All of us mired, wandering around, mired in sin and shame and ignorance. And Jesus brings us back. Jesus, as the good shepherd, lays down his own life, as he says, dying as a substitute, giving himself for us, for our sin and our guilt. He leads us to green pasture. He provides for our greatest needs. You read there in verse, in verse 1, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. As much as Israel in this time knew God to be a rock of salvation, we who have seen and come to know Christ know that he is more fully the rock of our salvation, the source and the means of our salvation, the one who planned, accomplished, and applied salvation to us. And so throughout Scripture, Psalm 23, Psalm 95, but especially in the person of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, God is showing us and trying to convince our hearts and minds that he is good and worthy and worthy of joyful singing. That being under his rule is a good thing, like having a shepherd that leads and cares for us. Now, one of the things that's kind of different in this time as compared to today is that as you read through this and, and in this time, the comparison seems to be between 
being under the rule of Yahweh or belonging to other gods. So you have verse 3 there. He is a great king above all other gods. In that time, and still in many times, place, times and places today, the obvious options before you are, well, am I going to worship and give my life to this god or to all these other gods? Because there's a lot to choose from. But that's not how people today tend to, thie- to see things, especially in our culture. Most people today tend to assume that there's no gods and that we belong to ourselves. We have a right to rule our own lives. And so the apparent options before us today are either belonging to ourselves, being a god unto ourselves, or perhaps belonging to a god. But the point is the same. He is a great king above all gods, including you yourself. Belonging to his rule is better than belonging to your rule. He is a better, more worthy, more trustworthy king and ruler of you than you are. And his rule, and as we acknowledge and submit to it, leads us to sing to the Lord, to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, to come into his presence with thanksgiving. The more that we behold him for who he is and who he is to us, the more we ought to joyfully sing to him. And so this is what we aim to do as a church in our gathering together on Sundays as the kids are are back in Roots Kids learning as we gather together in homes and studies and as you guys personally just get together with one another, we aim to behold in ever more clarity who God is and what he's done so that we might appropriately rejoice in him. We don't merely say, come on, rejoice. It tends to not work very well. But we want to point you to who God is, and let him motivate you. Now, you may have read ahead a little bit and noticed that there's a shift in this psalm in verse 7. It shifts from this great call to worship to a a warning. And these are related. These are two sides of the same coin. So the positive call is come and worship God with joy for who he's done, for what he's done, for who he is. The negative warning is beware of hardening hardening your heart to God and ceasing to trust him. You can't do these two things at the same time. You can't rejoice in God with a hard heart. And so verses 7 to the end there. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, this gets into a history lesson here real quick. Um, It looks back to the life of Israel um, to an event that we find in Exodus 17. So God had just rescued his people, uh, Israel, from their slavery in Egypt And he had done this in a mighty, obvious, miraculous way in order to show his power over Egypt and over all the so-called gods of Egypt, and also to show his care and protection for his people. 
Moses tells the people specifically, remember this day. Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. And Moses sets up then regular feasts and remind, remembrances and to help them remember what God had done, who God was to them. As they're journeying away from Egypt, God led them like a shepherd by pillars of clower, uh, pillars of fire and cloud, not clower. When the Egyptian army comes after them and they begin to fear and complain that they should have stayed in Egypt, God miraculously brings them through the Red Sea and destroys the Egyptian army, saying, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So God protects his people like a good shepherd. When there was only bitter water to drink in the desert, they cry out to God and God provides sweet water. When they get hungry, they grumble to Moses and God provides food in quail and manna. God feeds his people like a good shepherd. And after all of this, they once again come to a place when, where there's not, there's not enough water. And rather than praying to God, rather than asking God, rather than trusting who God was to them, they quarrel with Moses and, said, give us, and say, give us water to drink. So this is what Psalm 95 is referring to, this instant. This is the testing of the Lord. And Moses calls this place Massa, meaning testing, and Meribah, meaning quarreling. So here's what's going on here. The repeated evidence of God's goodness and power and care of God being a good shepherd to the Israelites had little to no effect on them. They continued to distrust God. They failed to turn to God when they had needs and instead put him to the test and grumbled and complained. They hardened their hearts, closed off their hearts to God when God was actually trying to soften their hearts and open up their hearts to him to show them that he was worthy of their trust. And notice a couple of phrases in, in Psalm 95 there. In verse 9, though they had seen my work, and then in verse 10, they have not known my ways. Though they had seen my work, they have not known my ways. They, they saw, it was evident clearly what God had done. They saw with their eyes what God had done. God made it known. But they didn't truly see and know and come because their hearts were hardened. You see, faith in God is not merely about having evidence. It's not merely about being convinced intellectually and having all our doctrine lined up in order. It is also about coming to God with soft and pliable and open hearts, ready to be cared for and led by a good shepherd. And ultimately, this generation of Israelites didn't do that, and God did not let them enter his rest, which refers to the promised land in, in this context, and they were made to wander in the desert for 40 years. Now, Psalm 95 is much past that time, but what is this saying for us in Psalm 95? Well, the message is obvious. Don't do the same thing. Today, so yes, this happened hundreds of years ago, but today, if you hear his voice, don't do what they did. If you hear his word, if you hear his gospel, if you hear him call you, don't harden your hearts. 
Even when times of, of sorrow and suffering and sin and loss come, don't harden your hearts. Remember who he is. Remember what, who he has shown himself to be to you. And then Hebrews quotes these very verses from Psalm 95 to make the same point. So right after quoting Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews in chapter 3 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There is so much to unpack in that. We're not going to do it today, but I'm excited to get to it in a couple months and, and unpack that. But for now, notice that the warning of Psalm 95 is as much, is just as real and necessary and relevant for us today who are in Christ. Beware of having an evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away from God. And here's the thing. This happens in subtle, gradual ways that are easy to justify. If we always knew when our hearts were becoming hard, when, when we were becoming evil and unbelieving, and we were always on guard against it, there would be no reason for such warnings. You know, when the bad guy shows up in cartoons and he's like black and like dark music starts playing, it's like, oh, that's the bad guy. It's obvious. It's not always like that in real life. And the reason, as it says in Hebrews 3 there, is that sin is deceptive. That means that we are often blind to what sin is doing. Sin is not only wrong and bad, it's also deceiving. It convinces us to think that it's good. It convinces us to think that it's not there. It's not sin. And we begin to subtly distrust and question God. Not, not question him in a, in a way that is ultimately faithful, and there's ways to question God, which we find in the Psalms, that, that come with faith, but leads us to put him in the dock and test him and, and slowly become hard and closed off to him. And what Hebrews says in drawing from Psalm 95 is that if we don't hold, hold fast till the end, we have no share in Christ. We do not enter his rest, which in, in, in Hebrews means the life in Christ. The life and joy and security that is ours in him and into eternity. And so here's how this all comes together. This first part of uh, Psalm 95 with the last part in Hebrews. Here's how this all comes together. The solution to having hard hearts or to not having hard hearts is not to have lukewarm hearts. It's not to have idle hearts, cold hearts, hearts that rarely ponder and behold God. That will lead to a hard heart. The solution is not to keep up some measure of religion and to do enough things to keep God off our back and merely put on an appearance of openness to God. No, in the place of hard hearts, as a cure against hard hearts, we are called to have singing and rejoicing and thankful hearts. We are called to come to the Lord and seeking to delight ourselves in him and be satisfied him, in him and to find him to be all we want and need. Even when, especially when, 
that seems so hard to do. Even when, especially when times of testing and trouble come, when sin and sorrow confront us, we are still called to sing to the Lord. This posture of joy and thanksgiving before God is not dependent on the situations of our lives or the feelings or state of our emotions. That's not to say that God doesn't care about the situations of our lives or the state of our emotions, but whatever our current state, part of the way that God is leading us like a good shepherd is calling us to behold him and to sing about his greatness and his sufficiency and his goodness and his grace and his nearness and to power to see him for who he is in all seasons. So in a minute here, we're going to do that. We're going to sing a couple songs. Joyfully now. <laughs> we're going to sing. We're going to reflect on who God is and who God is to us in Jesus. But let's pray that this is not merely something we do on Sundays, but is the increasingly the state and condition of our hearts throughout the week. Let's pray.